0: Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. How's that for a cruel passage? Psalm 119, 120. Forget everything else I've said. Remember my prayers. Forget everything else I've said. Let's look at God's words and get a few basic verses to start us this evening. We've looked at this verse a hundred times. I want you to see it and hear it. Therefore, I have seen all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate Every false way. Look also at Second Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We just read, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. I believe the word of God is right, whatever it teaches, and I hate everything to the contrary. Second yes. Timothy three sixteen. all Scripture, including Ezekiel, including Exodus, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Good works are described for us in the Word of God. And remember, Timothy did not have the New Testament, Timothy had the Old Testament scriptures, which we'll be using extensively along with the New Testament. Look also at Luke 16 and verse 15. Luke 16. And verse 15, Jesus said to the Pharisees, Luke sixteen fifteen, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Amen. Things highly esteemed among men are abomination with God. It's a rule of life. If the world loves it, it God thinks it stinks, and so do I, and I hope you do too. Look at Exodus chapter 23, Exodus 23, and verse 2, Exodus 23 and verse 2, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil, neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many to rest judgment. I want the first half of that verse. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. Because everyone else does something doesn't mean it's the thing to do. Amen. If the world esteems it, it's the thing not to do because it's an abomination with God. I read in Romans 12 and verse 2 that God would have us not to be transformed or conformed, excuse me, to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And guess what my job is? To renew your mind. To give you a new mind. By your way of instruction, God writes his law in your heart. And if you're a sincere child of God, what I say will bring rejoicing to your heart because you know it's the truth. Yes. But you're to be transformed, not conformed. Christians today are so conformed, you can't tell the difference any longer. I never knew the difference. What persecution did you poor people suffer when you were in high school? I never suffered any because I was as conformed as I could be. Instead of being transformed, And it's our job to be transformed. It's our job to make sure our families are transformed, not conformed. And it's my job to teach your mind. All of God's precepts concerning all things are right. Do we all start with that premise? If God says it, even though it may sound so bizarre, so strange, so gross to our minds, it's right. And we hate any false way that would raise up its ugly head against it. But all Scripture whether it's Exodus, Leviticus, Ezekiel, or Revelation, is by the inspiration of God and does have profit for us in the way of instruction in righteousness and to correct our false habits. It's all there. We're things highly esteemed among men are an abomination of God. Following a multitude to do evil is wrong, and thou shalt not do it. Just because everyone doesn't? What does that prove, if everyone does it? Sure. Um, you shouldn't do it, because men are perverse by nature unless the Word of God gives you leave to do it. I mean, they all eat and sleep. And we eat and sleep because the Word of God gives us leave to do it. But when it comes to matters of righteousness and how to do things that involve some ordinance of God, they always get it screwed up. That's right. I want to thank those of you who either wrote me, called me, or visited me for your support after last Sunday evening and said, preach it, and especially for the women that said that, that you believe every word of it, you love it, and you want to be conformed to that word, not to the world. I thank you for your support. Our minds are brainwashed. I'm sick right now, wondering how in the world I'm going to convince you of the veracity, the truthfulness, excuse me, of God's word. That it's right. Because you've got a mind, some 40, some 40, some 50, some almost 60 years of age that have been conditioned by... The same way that Pavlov's dogs were conditioned, it's always been done that way. And I'm going to go against all that. I'm going to go against Mommy and Daddy and Grandma, or maybe. I'm radical with a purpose. I know I'm radical. Listen, but when you look at the state of our nation and our civilization and the churches of Christ, what do you want? A little bit different emphasis? Or well, you want to be radical? It's time to be radical. Amen. Listen, Elijah thought it was time to be radical. Amen. And the Baptist thought it was time to be radical. Christ was radical. I want to be radical, if it requires that, to get back to the Bible. Amen. I want to go back to it. I don't care how radical it is. And I know it's going to sound radical. I already know what it's gonna sound like. That's why I'm the one sick. Remember my emphasis, I want to warn you. The reason I'm gonna come on so strongly points is a twofold reason. Number one, it's to establish God's emphasis. If God emphasizes a point, believe me, I'm gonna emphasize it. I'm gonna lift it up, I'm gonna shine it up like a jewelry, I'm gonna stick it in your faces and I'll rub your noses in it if you try to resist it. I'll preach a point until you're sick of it if I see resistance. Because I will establish God's emphasis. But we live in a generation where the emphasis is the other way. So not only do I have to establish God's emphasis, I have to destroy the emphasis that has corrupted all of us. And if the world is blasting at you one day through Saturday. So I have two reasons why I'm going to sound like a bat from a little or something. Or somebody that's on fire. And I am. But there's a reason for that, I have a Bible basis for it. 2 Corinthians 10 says I am to pull down your stronghold. And if they're strong, you don't walk up to them and pat them. You don't walk up to them and kiss them and say, would you please lower your drawbridge so I can march my army in. You go up there and tear it down. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 5 and 6 and 4 and 7 are what describes my warfare. I have to fight you. I have to fight me. And that's tearing down the world's emphasis and establishing God's emphasis. I can do no better than Isaiah chapter 6 where the God of heaven in a most glorious display of his majesty said, whom shall I send and who will go for me? And I'll tell you one thing. I'll go for him and you all can walk out the door and say I'm weird and I'm radical and I'll still go for him. Amen. Amen. Listen, brethren. I don't want to say it in the terms that I'd like to. Let me rephrase it. You don't even measure compared to him. That's right. That's right. You don't even measure compared to him, and he said, "Who will go for me?" Nobody wants to stand up for him. You want to stand up for your stupid little daughters, but nobody wants to stand up for him. I'll stand up for him and shove your little daughters down where they belong. Amen. Groveling at the feet of a man. You don't like it? My heart's pumping something that Jiffy sells. <laughs> Weddings illustrate one more sphere of where the world and sinful men and the devil has corrupted what God ordained. It's a great illustration of how perverse and corrupt men are of corrupt minds. Look at First Timothy chapter six. I don't even just hear it. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. That's what this world's filled with. These are teachers. They have perverse minds, and they're destitute of the truth. They're all corrupted. Everything's turned around, upside down, and backward. And you're gonna see that. And we, uh, hopefully you always saw on last Sunday. It's time to get going. Elements of a scriptural wedding. A wedding is that event that begins a marriage. It's that event that initiates it, that the public acknowledgement, this man, this woman, a man and wife. It's what gets it started. It's not a church ceremony. You, when I say wedding, you know what pops into every one of your minds, including the one speaking? When you say the word wedding, it's a ceremony where you hear an organ playing, here comes the bride. Every one of you thinking that way. And you got people dipping candles and stuff. That's what comes to your mind when you think about wedding. But nowhere is that in the Word of God. What is a wedding in the Word of God? We want to look at the scriptural elements of a true wedding. Remember, what does a traditional wedding look like and what does it require generally? And don't give me exceptions. Number one, it generally occurs in a church building. I don't care about your garden weddings. It generally occurs in a church building because that's where Rome wants it to occur. Number two, a traditional wedding must be performed by some sort of a priest, and I'll say it again. Any Baptist minister who tries to perform a traditional wedding is pretending for that hour he's a priest. Because he's doing something the New Testament never gave a Baptist minister the authority to do. I'm not going to call him a sinner or a Roman priest for doing it if he does his little ceremony in a way that doesn't involve a mass. But I'm going to tell you one thing. He's playing so close with an evil tradition that he's pretending he's a priest. Number three. In a ceremony, the service, the wedding itself is a religious event. Four, the bride is always emphasized over the groom. Five, the groom's father is ignored. Six, the bride's father is ignored. And then you've got all the traditions I'm not going to bother you with, all the little customs. Those, that's what makes up a traditional wedding. The first, then I talked to you last Sunday evening, where they come from. Why is it in a church building? Why is it done by a priest? And why is it religious in nature? Because the Catholic Church had to make Marriage and weddings, a religious event, make it a sacrament to control that element of her members so that her daughters could not go marry Protestant boys and be taken out of a church. She has to control her people. And when you've got to have it done before, a Catholic priest in a Catholic church with a Catholic mass, believe me, yes, you're creating Catholics every time you have a wedding. Holy matrimony. It is so obvious to a thinking mind where it came from because the word of God is so silent to these church weddings right. so silent Rome started it just go read anything you want it is a sacrament of the church of Rome an essential element for salvation for getting grace into your life any marriage that takes place anywhere else outside a Catholic church performed by a Catholic priest it is if it's done by a justice of the peace considered not a marriage at all and your children are illegitimate and if it's performed by any other minister of any other church, not only is it not a marriage, and it's an Ill, you have Ill, illegitimate children because their bastard's born out of wedlock, but you're also excommunicated for even thinking you can do it outside the Catholic Church. That is control. That is control. I spent all the time I'm going to spend on that. I spent it last Sunday evening about the Catholic Church and their seven sacraments and the sacrament called holy matrimony. Holy matrimony isn't a scriptural concept, it's the Catholic idea of what makes a wedding. I wanted to give you the elements of a scriptural wedding, that's what this is about. I gave you one last Sunday evening. That element is a scriptural wedding should be a practical event, not a religious event. It should involve feasting and a party and celebration, not some religious ceremony. Nowhere in the world of God do you have people giving vows to each other before some priest, dipping candles and doing anything religious. There's nothing to do with the Bible. You don't put your hand in the Bible, you don't promise the Bible anything, you don't it's not done in the Word of God. You say, but it sounds so good. It sounds so spiritual. It sounds so religious. It sounds so right to come into God's presence and to have God's man there, the Bible there, and candles, and its glory, and the an organ, and hymns being sung. <clears throat> that adds an element of spirituality to the God didn't think that was necessary. That's right. Amen. God didn't think that was necessary. The minute you get a woman thinking that's necessary to a wedding, you just lost half your wife. Because the reason men marry women is not for some spiritual relationship. If you married your wife for a spiritual relationship, you've got problems. And if you want to know what those problems are, ask me later. Because that is a sick concept of marriage. (coughs) The Catholics love that concept. Because it takes a great deal of burden off the woman. And it makes marriage something that the Bible never made it. And it creates... The premises, the assumptions for teaching that marriage is indissoluble, can never be violated, never be broken, because it's a spiritual relationship. The Catholics were the first to teach that there's no grounds for divorce for any cause. We looked at all the references last Sunday. What does a wedding look like in the Word of God? It looks like a bachelor's party. All the men are getting together and celebrating the fact that another man has a woman. Genesis 29, verse 22. A certain king made a marriage for his son. What was it? A supper feast. Jesus Christ went to a marriage in Cana of Galilee. John chapter 2. What was it? A supper where there was lots of wine. It's a time of celebration. And a wedding should incorporate that. That should be the preeminent thing, not sobriety. Yes, I know i preached on sobriety. But a feast was not made for sobriety. A feast was made for laughter. Ecclesiastes 10 19. And whenever you find a five-letter word describing a wedding, it's called a feast in the Word of God, and that is a time for laughter, and the laughter is mostly on the part of the man, because he is celebrating the fact he's got a woman. And another, I'll leave it with this point. I said it last Sunday, you all got the message. Can you imagine Samson, Jacob, Laban, Jesus, and, and the others who, who have been to a real wedding? Can you imagine them participating in one of our receptions? Yeah. Cookies and punch. (laughs) Cookies and punch for 30 minutes. Isn't that precious? We don't even... We live in a generation of things they really know about pleasure. How about a seven-day feast? A seven-day feast. Now that's wild. That is a party. That's a party. 30 minutes of punch and cookies. But we had cold cuts at ours, Boy, <laughs> I'll bet if Samson was back, he would be impressed.
1: <laughs>
0: isn't it pitiful? it was so distorted? So distorted. Huh? That's a real commitment by a guest, isn't it, to show up for 30 minutes and have punch and cookies. How about seven days? Now that is a celebration. When your friends would take off seven days to celebrate with you, you've got a woman. Did they know how to exalt a wedding and a marriage? Amen. <laughs> Element number two, and this will begin what we need to cover tonight. A wedding should reflect the parental authority and approval that makes a marriage possible. (coughs) Who chose the bride for Jesus Christ? God Almighty. Did he ask the bride? If he had, what kind of a bride would Jesus Christ have? He wouldn't yeah. have anyone wrote their names in the book of life and sent jesus christ to perfect them so that they'd be a glorious bride at the marriage supper of the lamb i've preached on that before but if there's one thing the bible teaches it teaches that a man and a woman of a young age that have not been married do not know how to pick spouses that's right and if there's one thing 20th century america teaches a thinking mind they do not know how to pick Amen. You give me a generation where everybody gets to pick who they marry, and I'll give you a generation where over 50% of the marriages end up in divorce legally, and the rest wish they were, generally. You say, Oh, I know, but I'm an exception to that. and well, I don't care. What is the general rule in America today? Marriages don't last because there's no commitment, and you don't get a commitment by choosing the person you're going to marry. You say, that, You're really sick. No, you make a commitment because you're required by a higher authority to keep your commitment in marriage. And that higher authority comes from a parent, not from a spouse. My wife has that much influence over me when I am ticked off. You know how much that is? Can you see my fingers? That much. There are other obligations of a higher, high, a far higher authority than she'll ever be. You know, this idea of making vows to each other in the wedding room, I get to this in a minute, but I just can't wait. You know, you stand and you look, you're all, you're not thinking about what you're saying, you've memorized your little lines, the priest is telling you what to say, you say, I do, I do. And so you have vowed to the spouse. The minute you get into the marriage and you're ticked off, who are you ticked off at (laughs) in a marriage? There's only two of you. Who are you mad at? The spouse. Do you think when you're mad at your spouse, you're going to be thinking about your promises to your spouse? That isn't the way it works. You want to hear something better? How about making some promises to the spouse's dad? How about making some promises to your own dad? And some commitments that could be visible outwardly, outside your marriage, where you have promised higher authorities than yourself of how you're going to perform, especially the authority of God. Promising someone something And that's the person that you're going to be in conflict with falls apart the moment you're in conflict. Let's go back to the fact that parents are far more qualified to select and qualify spouses than any child will ever be. God created the parent-child relationship for a purpose. Because children come into this world with less intelligence than the pigs. We read about this morning in Luke chapter 8. They come in with a a blank mind. A blank mind. They have to be taught. And as they're taught, remember when I taught in child training, you start a child's life with the control phase. That means you don't tell them why. You don't explain the danger of things. You just keep them from the danger. If you have a swimming pool, you put a fence around it. So they cannot get to the pool. As they get older, you try to teach them how to swim, and the danger of swimming after meals, if there is any danger, and the danger of doing other things that could involve the water. You begin to instruct them more than to control them. God created children. He created it for a purpose. You know, God could have created us all. Adult. We could just pop into being just as easy as anything. You know, I, I could start developing a lump on my back, and the lump would go, pop off, and there'd be an adult there. I mean, God could have been any number of ways. Why do we develop children from a stage of total ignorance and have to train them? Why do you do it that way? To establish authority. To establish authority. Because the way we treat our children is a picture of God with us. It's to establish authority. God created it that way to give us a test of our own authority and whether we'll exercise it or not. Children don't know. Look at Proverbs 22 and verse 15. The second element that belongs in a scriptural wedding is a place of preeminence for both fathers. Proverbs chapter 22. There's a reason. The first reason is children are stupid. And love makes them more stupid. That's, what do we say? Love is blind. And listen, my experience and the experience of most of you who've looked around, if you let people choose who they're going to fall in love with, I <laughs> bubble. It's terrible. It's terrible. They, they will. Proverbs 22, verse 15. You let a 15 year old fall in love, and they will fall in love with scum bags. You let a 15 year old guy fall in love, and he'll generally fall in love with some whore. It's the nature of things. They're fools. There's a reason. It's right here. Proverbs twenty-two, fifteen. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. The rod of corruption shall drive it far from him. Children come into this world foolish. By nature, they're foolish. They're not thinking of the future. They've never had to live in the future. Their mind is no longer in the next 24 hours if they are extremely mature for their age. 20. I was, look at how merciful I am. Brother, don't accuse me of being... I'm merciful because I just gave him credit for 24 hours, and you know the average teenager can't think me 24 minutes. What pleasure can I get right now? They never think of the future. If there's any sphere or a specter of our lives where we're willing to sacrifice the future for immediate gratification, it's when we're teenagers. That's right. Foolishness and immaturity are bound in the hearts of children. It says it right there. A child is foolish. You say well, my, ch- my daughter is seventeen years old. You can't call that a child. I'll call it a child. Mm-hmm. Right, right. See, I thought you believed in young marriages. Yeah, when fathers train their children. Amen. How about Proverbs twenty-nine? I still believe in young marriages. I'll, I'll get to that one time. Proverbs twenty-nine fifteen: The rod reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself will do okay because in the 20th century they're going to be a whole lot smaller than parents a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame and you let a child select who they're going to marry who they're going to date and they will end up shaming their mother if she is a wise woman now women of this world wouldn't know the difference and so they'd never be shamed obviously there's something assumed here you've got a woman that can think. Children are foolish and unable to make decisions for themselves, especially in the lifelong commitment of marriage. Why do you think they don't last? Because they don't know what marriage is about. Isn't that exceedingly foolish to let children that have never been married choose whom they're going to marry? A 20-year-old child, by definition, has parents that have been married at least... 20 years that is 20 years of experience day in day out of having to live with another person as a spouse isn't that a lot of you learn anything in 20 years you learn a lot in 20 minutes don't you when you drive away from a church that's what we all did you start learning immediately don't you how about 20 days but see God never gave trial marriages shacking up and we're going to try it for a while that's what the world says today God never taught that you know what he taught? He taught parents to try it for 20, 30, 40 years, and then for them to make the decision on whom their children will marry. Doesn't that make sense? Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah, I know it's bizarre, but doesn't it make sense? A man or woman who's been married for 20 years, don't they know a little bit about what you want to look for in a uh, spouse? And here comes some good eyed little 17-year-old girl along. She doesn't have the wisdom God gave a gnat when it comes to understanding men. She has a father that God gave her that is a man and has lived with a woman for 20 years. That man's decision about whom she should marry should be held in such high regard and is ignored today. It's ignored today. That's because dad doesn't even care any longer. He is so beaten down in most homes, he hurt, he just exists as a figurehead that earns the paycheck and pays for the wedding. Parents are objective by being free. You know, a parent is sitting back looking at that couple. They're thinking of the next 50 years. They're not emotionally involved, so there's no distortion of their mind. They're very objective about it and they have a concern for the welfare of the person involved instead of just the temporary, immediate feelings that go along with puppy love. Isn't that a a parent cares about the future welfare? That parent has invested 20 years in that life, and that parent is concerned, will this man or will this woman help my son or daughter be better over the next 50 years? They're not emotionally involved, so they're very objective. They don't have the youthful enthusiasm of everything wonderful that young couples do, is to a lot of wisdom with age. God made parents wiser. They ought to make the decisions because they're far more qualified. You know, our nation has laws of parental consent. Do you know where those laws came from? The Word of God. Now, I think the word consent stinks. I'm just not going to consent. Sorry. She knows. We walked around the block and talked about it this afternoon before I even came here. Again, for the 283rd time. <laughs> consent doesn't mean anything to me. It, it's more like selection and obtaining and enforcing. I don't like the word consent. I'll tell her who to love. You say that, it really sick. No, it isn't. God tells us all who to love. That's right. I'm supposed to love my cousin, love my neighbor love my church so on God tells me who to love and I'm going to tell her who to love believe me I'm going to pick the man that she'll want to love out of any men that are available you say God never gave a father or a husband that kind of authority though listen I'll tell you something God gave a man this authority that if a father got wind that his daughter was off marrying some guy in the Catholic church and he walked down that street and found the church and walked in that door and the ceremony was over and they are having their little reception. And a judge had been there and a priest had been there and God himself had been there. And they had vowed all afternoon, with all the vows they could muster, that father could walk in and say, this whole thing is a shame and my daughter's going home and is going to fix supper for me tonight. Right. Do I have a Bible verse on that or do I have a Bible chapter to prove that? whole chapter. A whole chapter, Numbers chapter 30. A woman's vow does not stand until her father ratifies it. Or her husband ratifies it. Now that's a lot of authority. And you know what kind of vows under consideration in numbers 30? They're not vows before judges, and they're not vows to judges, and they're not little I do's to some jerk. They are promises of sacrifice to the almighty God of heaven a father could abrogate. Numbers 30, don't ever forget it. Now I'm going to pile it out. I'm going to make you sick of flipping pages. I want you to see that in the word of God, parents arranged marriages. And if you don't like arranged marriages and parental, not influence, I don't like that word because that sounds like you just, well, sweetie, don't you think that Tommy is a little better than Johnny? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm I'm talking about a father saying, Johnny, if I see you around this house again, you're going to be a paraplegic. <laughs> you laugh. You laugh. You laugh. Let some jerk pursue my daughter and try to see her when she's away from me, and she'll have. If she marries him, she will be married to a paraplegic. She won't be in the best physical shape either. Forget it. No jerk is going to come and undo 20 years of my investment in her and undo the rest of her life. Wow, that's what God created fathers for. And I wish tonight, more than anything else, i get a hold of about 20 men's hearts and squeeze them. Because God gave you some responsibility. And if you let your little brainless daughters go out and do something foolish, and they will because they don't have a brain. I don't care what they score on their achievement test. When it comes to guys, I don't care if they live to be 95. Now listen to me. If they live to be 95 and have 10 husbands and have the wisdom of Solomon, they will never understand a man. You understand a man. You know the dangers of dating and engagement and marriage and the risk of being married to the wrong man. Marriage is hell for a woman. It's double hell. Man, you see a woman that's lived in a poor marriage and you've seen hell. And you've seen it all over her face every night. God have mercy, I'm glad I'm not one. I'd like to take a woman that's had a terrible marriage and shove her in the face of every man and say, that's what your daughter's going to get if you don't get all over her. And those little girls are sitting there probably right now and I'd like to slap you silly. If you're thinking I'm out to spoil your fun, I'm out to protect your life from hell. Right. You wait till you get married to some jerk and he comes home and abuses you every night. Hmm? Well, don't most men don't do. Tommy's such a nice guy. Tommy Baloney! You wait till he gets you married and he has a bad day at work. And he meets someone else. He'll abuse you <laughs> verbally, psychologically, physically, sexually, financially, whatever. It's hell. It's hell. For a woman married to the wrong man, and it's your job to make sure she doesn't do that. Because she isn't able on her own to protect herself. You know what the Bible calls women? There's an adjective, it's five letters long. It starts with S and ends with Y. It's in Second Timothy three. Can you remember it? Sure. Silly. You know what that means? Helpless, defenseless, <laughs> ignorant, mean naive, foolish, Don't. He rides a motorcycle. He's the quarterback on the football team. He's so cute. He brings me flowers. I mean, give me a, you can give any other number of examples you want, it means nothing. A father can look and see how hard that man works on his job, how respectful he is to authority, how he can see through the show and know whether that guy is going to provide for my daughter and love her and take care of her or not. And it's your job, fathers, and if there's one th- I'm not yelling at daughters tonight and girls. I, listen, I'm going after you men. It's your job. That's right. Now, let's look at some examples. Let me bore you for a while. Genesis 21. That's only if you don't like the word of God. Genesis 21. Genesis 21 and verse 21. I'm not even going to try to explain these. There's nothing to explain parents' arranged marriages. That's all I want to get. Genesis twenty one twenty one. Ishmael dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. Ishmael, a mighty man. He needed a wife. His mother went and got him one. You say, well, how'd you get a wife back then? Right here. Credit right. cards if you didn't have the cash. I not boys.
1: <laughs>
0: money! You bought one. A dollar. You went and paid a dowry, and you took one. Listen, the dollar was sufficiently high to guarantee you. Somebody was going to be taken care of. You do invest. See, God knows that money speaks. And if you've invested money in something, you're going to take care of it. And if you bought a woman, you're going to take care of her. You say, well, that's awful. That's a a low standard. I think it's a whole lot higher than Tommy playing quarterback for the local football team. Amen. Mm -hmm. Genesis 21, 21. There's the first one. Genesis 24. This is the one everybody knows about. Genesis 24. Abraham's old. He's scared to death. Who's Isaac going to marry? He married his sister. Abraham married his sister, half-sister. Who's Isaac going to marry? He gets his servant, go back home. Go back to our relatives. I hate these Canaanites. Go back to our relatives and take a wife for Isaac. And bring her back here and get them married. And there's a vow here. There's a whole, a whole chapters about this event. You all are aware of this. Look at verse 3. And I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred, and take a wife unto my son Isaac. Notice Abraham and his servant have a business transaction. They get a woman for Isaac. <laughs> Go ahead and hate that method. It's the word of God. Look at verse 61. And Rebecca arose in her damsels, and they rode upon the camels and followed the man. And the servant took Rebecca and went his way. And Isaac, well, we read it last Sunday. You know the story. She's on her camel, Isaac's meditating out in the field, she sees him, she pulls her veil on, she gets off the camel, the servant says, this is how I found her, he takes her into the tent. their husband and wife, and believe me, God did bless them. And as far as I know, they had a very fine marriage. Listen, they were maximizing their marriage over in Genesis chapter 20 when poor Abimelech looked out his window and found them squirting in a field. You say, is that in the word of God? Yes, it's in it is. All right. Never done the field? <laughs> Genesis chapter twenty-seven. No, let's take it, Genesis twenty-four. This is too good. I've heard this before, I've read this in commentaries, but they gave Rebecca a choice. They gave Rebecca a choice. Oh no, they didn't give Rebecca a choice. Let's read it carefully. Verse 50. Now the servant's explained. I'm gonna come back to this when we qualify a groom. That servant told Laban and Bethuel certain things about Isaac to convince them about his financial well-being? that He's going to get the entire inheritance of Abraham, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But anyway, look at verse 15. Then Laban, that's the brother of Rebekah, and Bethuel the father, answered and said, The thing proceeded from the Lord. We cannot speak unto thee bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before thee. Take her and go. And let her be thy master's son's wife, as the Lord had spoken. And it came to pass that when Abraham's servant heard their words, he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. And they had sort of a wedding, without the groom even being there. And the servant brought forth jewels of silver and jewels of gold, and right, he gave them to Rebecca. He gave also to her brother and to her mother precious things. And they had eaten, drank, he and the men that were with him, and tarried all night. And they rose up in the morning, and he said, Send me away unto my master. And her brother and her mother said, Let the damsel abide with us a few days, at the least ten. After that she shall go. And he said unto them, Hinder me not, seeing the Lord hath prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, We will call the damsel so and inquire her mouth. Now well, I want to stop you right here. What were they asking Rebecca about?
1: When to
0: when, when go. How many days before she'd go? The question of whether she was going to go, realize Isaac's wife had been decided by father and brother. It was totally out of her hands. It's never, never put in the woman. Once in a while, you'll find the groom selecting who he's going to marry, but you never find the bride doing that. We will call the damsel and inquire in her mouth, and they called Rebecca, and I love Rebecca, and said unto her, Wilt thou go with this man? And she said, I will go. Isn't that great? Mm-hmm. She didn't need 10 days, 5 days, or another hour. I will go. And they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his man they blessed her, and so on. Notice... Rebecca, listen, Rebecca's fate You said, but to be married to a man for 50 years is a fate Decided by someone else That's right Decided by someone else Decided by father and brother Are there any two people in the world that love a woman more than her father and her brother Before she has a husband I can see it Listen, you know why it's a father and a brother? Because they're men Guess who only understands men in this world? Men I'll say it again A woman can live to be 95, have ten husbands, and have the wisdom of Solomon, and she still won't understand a marriage. She cannot. She is incapable. Her mind doesn't even function that way. And the most important thing in a marriage is the man. The man's the head of that thing. If it's going to work or not, it's the man's responsibility. And a man can measure another man, and a woman cannot. That's why women voted for Jimmy Carter. Genesis, that's another subject. Genesis chapter 27. Why women fall for Jimmy Baker? Oh. Genesis
1: 27,
0: verse 46. Rebecca said to Isaac, Now Rebecca's an older woman. She has children. What are her children's names? Jacob and Esau. Rebecca said to Isaac, Verse 46 of Genesis 27, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. Those are the local high school girls. (laughs) Come on! Let's use the word of God. Right. If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Hath, such as these which are the daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? The ruin of a life if your children marry the wrong people. Right. So what does Isaac do? Verse 1 of chapter 28. And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him <coughs> and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Sally, that you're going with, that you met in high school, it's over. It's dead. You cannot marry her. Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Paden Aram, to the house of Bethuel, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. Go marry your cousins back in Paden Aram. Don't, you may not marry anyone here. Verse 3, and God Almighty bless thee, And make thee fruitful, and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people. And Jacob went and found Rachel. Jacob went and found Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel. Rachel was beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel. And guess who he got the first name? Leah. Now wait a minute. How how could a man who knows that another man doesn't love his daughter give his daughter away to him anyway? because he's a very diligent man that to God's hand was upon him and he was prosperous. I'd rather have a man that's going to take care of her and not love her very much than have somebody who's going to send a whole lot of valentine cards and not take care of her. You say, I know, my skin crawls too. Come on, I, I, I sound bad. But I take deep breaths too. And listen, I've been playing with this for years and I still have to get enough oxygen to be able to say it. There is a woman, Leah, her father knows Jacob doesn't love her. He still gets her to him because he knows Jacob's going to take care of her. Because Jacob has always seen the time of employment? Seven years. Uh, Do you know anything about Jacob's employment? If a wolf got in the flock of Laban's sheep and destroyed a sheep, what did Jacob do? He made it. He made it whole from his own pocket. Anybody want my daughter, they live that way, and I'll think the same way. Does that make sense? You see a man that diligent, that faithful, and that honest, that's a man you want your daughter married to. I don't care if he doesn't get goosebumps when she walks around. Genesis 34. Now Jacob has this. We're moving along the generations, every generation so far. Now we've got Jacob, and he's got 12 sons and one daughter. And if you know the story of Genesis 34, they come through a land of... <coughs> The Hivite, verse 2, Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite. Now Shechem saw her, took her, fornicated with her. I mean, he, he had the order a little mixed up, but he, and not a little bit, but that's, he was a Canaanite. He was a Canaanite, that's why Isaac and Rebekah were so sick How about the Canaanites. But notice verse 4, even these pagans. Shechem spake unto his father, Hamor, say, get me this damsel to wife. Genesis 34, 4, look at verse 8. And Hamor commune that's the father, with them, that is Jacob and his twelve sons, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longeth for your daughter. I pray you give her him to life. It's a t- marriage is a transaction between men. Right. That is the point I'm on. I want to see weddings where there are two men placed in positions of preeminent authority, the father of the bride and the father of the groom, because a marriage is a transaction between them. It is one man saying, This woman that I have cared for day in, day out for 20 years, I give to you and to your son to take care of her for the rest of her life as a wife. It's a transaction between men. Those little I do's between a groom and a bride are irrelevant compared to that transaction. That's a dad who has spent 20 years of love, time, money, and effort to preserve that girl. Or 30, or 15, whatever the case might be. It's a transaction between men. It will always be that way, in the word of God. It's Jacob dickering with Laban. Laban says, "I, uh, you look like a good man. And listen, I want you to work for free. That's not fair. What do you want? I'll work seven years for Rachel. I mean, it's, it's dickering. Seven years, you know. Laban could have said, well, seven. Look at her. Look at that. I mean, you want to talk about well favored? Ten years. Jacob says, Eight. Hey,
1: Laban says, nine.
0: Jacob says, eight and a half. And Laban says, okay. It's dickering. It's murdering for a woman. You say that's to the God, rest your soul. Genesis 34 and verse 11. Shechem said unto her father and to her brother. Now we've heard Shechem's father, his dad. Dad, get her for me. you got to have her. Dad goes and sees Jacob. I want, her for my, I want her for my son. Verse 11. Now Shechem shows up. Shechem said unto her father and unto her brother, Let me find grace in your eyes. And what ye shall say unto me, I will give. Ask me never so much dowry and gift, and I will give according as ye shall say unto me, but give me the damsel to wife. It's a deal between a father and mothers. I don't care what, I mean, this guy, he was madly in love. This is called madly in love. (laughs) Any price for this woman. Whatever you ask, I'll pay. Just have enough mercy to name a price. I will come up with it, I gotta have her. But notice the point B, his fathers and brothers doing the dealing. And did the father Jacob and the brothers, being the sons of Jacob, know that Dinah was not going to be given to Shechem? Especially two of them, and you remember their names? Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are staying there. I gotta tell you the rest of this story. They said, hey, we're not interested in money. All we want you to do is get circumcised along with the rest of the men of your city. Sounds simple enough to me. Save all the money. So they had a big day in town. The doctor's offices were all clogged up. All the men went home, walking, bow-legged. And on the third day, when they were all sore, you know that, listen is the word of God. Right. They were all sore on the third day, and Simeon and Levi, had, they knew their sister had been violated. This is why I said the word paraplegic. Sidney and Levi walked into town and killed every man in it, and leveled that city. Now God did not bless them for that deed because there was undue violence. And they did not do it with Jacob's approval, they did it secretly. But they went in and killed all the male inhabitants of that city for what they had done to their sister. That's why brothers are very good at making choices for sisters. I love Simeon and Levi because while they may have gone too far, they were sure headed in the right direction. And that was to vindicate their sister. That's Genesis chapter 38. Look at Exodus chapter 2. Moses runs away from Egypt. Remember, he ends up in Midian. Jethro's his father in law. Jethro gave him a wife to keep him around. Her name was Zipporah. Look at Exodus 21. Exodus 21. I know this is going to be a hard for you to take, and I'm not saying we need to go back to all of, it, to the specific practices they had then, but it shows principles for us. Exodus 21 verse 7. Notice this: If a man sell his daughter to be a maidservant, she shall not go out as the men servants do. If a man was in financial need, I mean, he had a daughter. A daughter was all. A woman's always been a valuable commodity. If a man had a daughter, he can sell her to be a maidservant. Now, God knew that no man would ever buy a maidservant without using her as a woman. See, God understands things that fools don't. God knew that if you ever bought a female to be a servant, you're going to use her as a wife. That's why he said she cannot go out as the servants do. See, servants can split after seven years, remember? Verse 8, if she please not her master who hath betrothed, no notice. God just assumes you buy a maidservant, she's a wife, who hath betrothed her to himself, then shall he let her be redeemed. To sell her unto a strange nation, he shall have no power. See, he hath dealt deceitfully with her. And if he hath betrothed her unto his son, he shall deal with her after the manner of daughters. Why do I bring up this passage? For this purpose. A father controls the fate of his daughter. That is the word of God. You say it's not fair. God gave that daughter to that man, and God gave the man sufficient intelligence to deal with her to deal her away, as a maidservant or as a wife. God made those decisions. Amen. I did. Look at Exodus 34. Exodus 34, the point I am proving over and over again is that marriages in the Bible were arranged by parents. Exodus 34 and verse 16. There's a covenant that God is making with Israel. It's a commandment of the danger of covenanting, verse 15, with the inhabitants of Canaan. Because what will happen is Verse 16 that thou will take of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters go whoring after their gods, and make thy sons go whoring after their gods. What's going to happen as you get close to this nation, you're going to go pick their daughters for your sons. Those daughters are going to go back whoring after their old pagan gods, and your sons are going to go with them. The point being, what I want you to get, is that fathers pick the daughters anyway from the foreign nation. Thou take of their daughters unto thy sons. It doesn't say, now boys, don't take any of those girls. It says, Dad, you're going to end up doing something wrong. <laughs> Look at Deuteronomy 22. Oh, listen, one will show you. Deuteronomy 22. I, I hope he's got a strong stomach right now in faith. Do you know how rape was punished in the Word of God? What oh, was the punishment for rape? He married her. Deuteronomy 22, verse 28, If a man find a damsel that is a virgin, which is not betrothed, she's not engaged, and lay hold on her. Uh, No, in in Exodus 22, it's seducer. Mm -hmm. Here it's lay hold on her and lie with her and may be found. Then the man that lay with her shall give unto the damsel's father 50 shekels of silver. you know what that is? That is the dowry of a virgin. He has to compensate the father with an equivalent price that another man would have paid to get a virgin because he took away her virginity. And she shall be his wife. Because he hath humbled her, he may not put her away all his days. A woman who loses her virginity, her value drops in half, and her value drops significantly. It's called humbling. That humbling doesn't mean that all of a sudden a woman who loses her virginity walks around with a much meager spirit. It means her value just went down in the stock market. And she no longer can command the dowry of virgins. Instead of 50 shekels of silver, it's a couple pennies. But the man has to pay the 50 shekels of silver anyway he has to marry the woman and notice the provision of divorce which was provided for all other men in all their marriages was taken away from him because he humbled her he was stuck with her the rest of his life that's how my god thinks i think that's pretty fair now what if you were the father of that girl and it was a real jerk that did it would be, 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 be a jerk anyway if he did that but i mean a real jerk you know there are some diligent men that could provide for a woman that might fornicate with your daughter. That can happen, and the solution would be marriage. The solution for fornication is marriage. It is a reconcilable offense. But what if a father thought he was a real jerk? Exodus twenty-two tells us that if the father utterly refuses, he does not have to give that woman to him. He gets the dowry of a virgin, the key, and the guy goes without the wife. And he can, he can give his daughter away to someone else. Yes, she's been humbled, and her value is far less. But what is the point? I want you to get from Deuteronomy 22? I want you to get the fathers, make those decisions, and that God, God would put a woman with a rapist attacker to reconcile that offense. There is no other better way to solve that in God's judgment. You say that, hey, listen, if a man rapes a woman, that's a virgin She should die for it no he isn't the woman was made for the man then what about when a man rapes a woman that's engaged he's raping another man not the woman if he's just raping a woman you get married Thank through the word of God the woman was made for the man you don't kill a man for raping a woman unless that woman is another man's. all the difference in the world Judges 15. Judges chapter 15. Jim, do you know what Judges 15 is about? This is fathers arranging marriages. Judges chapter 15. Jim's favorite Bible character. Caleb. Caleb had a beautiful daughter. What did how did Caleb get a husband for his daughter? How do you do it? It's a great story. Judges 15. And verse 16. Remember, Caleb is the one that said, I want the mountain that has the giants. Give me this mountain. (laughs) So he's got this mountain covered with giants. What better test for a son-in-law? Right? If you get a mountain, don't you want your son-in-law to be king of the mountain? I'm sorry. I was in Joshua. Why weren't you? (laughs) Joshua 15. Joshua 15. Joshua 15. Look at that. Joshua 15. my type is I mean, <laughs> Joshua 15. Don't you want your son in law to be king of the mountain? Yes. Well, then give him a mountain to be king of. Give him a mountain covered with giants with cities walled up to heaven and say, buddy, you can take that. There she is. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that a test? <laughs> what a task so, the man that can do it wouldn't you want to give your daughter away to him right. Caleb said Cal- we know Caleb's a righteous man he that smiteth Kershaw's secret and taketh it to him will I give Aksa my daughter to wife and Othniel the son of Kenaz the brother of Caleb took it and he gave him Aksa his daughter to wife simple transaction man <laughs> I've made a commitment to give me this mountain. Even though I told Joshua that I'm just as strong as I was when I was forty, my rheumatism's acting up today. <laughs> Any of you men take the city, I'll give you my daughter. I mean, come on. Thanks you, the word of God. With me. It was a transaction between men. He qualified very quickly. One great exhibition of courage. <laughs> and he gave him his daughter. Look at Ruth 3. Now well, you know the story of Ruth. Who, who arranged the marriage between Ruth and Boaz? Naomi, who did all the conniving and figuring? Hey, we've got a kinsman around here that uh, I know is second in line, but if he'd sneak into that threshing uh, floor tonight and lay at his feet, I'll just bet he'd go buy off the other party tomorrow, and uh, you could be as well. Who went through all that? We studied the book of Ruth, and Naomi did. Arranged marriages. Do we have any evidence that Ruth was madly in love with Boaz? But Boaz is madly in love with Ruth. I mean, Boaz was quite a there It seems to have been quite a difference in age between the two of them. He said, hey, uh, why aren't you going after all the young guys that you're working for? She had a reputation of being a very virtuous woman that was arranged by Naomi. It was an arranged marriage. In Ruth chapter 3, the first two verses. Look at 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18. I cannot believe how slow I'm going. 1 Samuel 18. Saul had two daughters. One was named Merib and one was named Michael. Which one did David love? Michael. Which one did Saul want to give him? Merib. Verse 17, Saul said to David, Behold, my elder daughter Merib, her will I give thee to wife. Only be thou valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul said to himself, Let not mine hand be upon him, but let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. That is an example of a father giving away his father simply for the purpose of trying to get his son-in-law killed. I don't want to use Saul because Saul is a perverse man. But the principle is that fathers gave away daughters. And you don't find daughters marching in the streets with placards and signs saying, We will not listen to Dad. There's none of that. They went to, listen, especially to king because his daughters were very important as political gifts and political marriages. Now I hear, I just heard something. Some of you are saying that's all in the Old Testament. And you've stepped out of balance now because when Jesus Christ came, he lifted marriage from a sacred contract to a sacrament. And parents don't arrange marriages anymore. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and never forget this passage. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the great chapter on marriage in the New Testament. This is more powerful than any passage I have read so far, because not only does this passage teach that fathers have the right to pick the spouse, as the Old Testament taught, this passage goes beyond that and teaches that fathers have the right to pick whether the daughter ever marries or not. Amen. 1 wow. <laughs> Corinthians 7.36. If any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin... A man's got a virgin daughter, he starts to feel guilty about the fact that she's very eligible and she'd like to be married, if she passed the flower of her age. Most of you don't want to know what that means. You want to know what that means, the flower of her age? It doesn't mean menopause. It means the other end of that time period. It's the end of puberty, the flower of her age, when she enters marrying age, 12 years of age. You say, wait wait a minute, wait a minute. Listen, if we had lived in Bible times, 12-year-olds would be quite fit for marriage. In God's scheme of things, and there's a whole lot of wisdom in it. We can't do it today, because I haven't met 12-year-olds that are even close. In fact, I don't think most 18-year-olds are fit today to be wives. If she passed the flower of her age, and need so required. Let him do what he will. He sinneth not. Let them marry. He's got a virgin daughter. She's 12 years old. She's starting to burn as far as wanting a husband, wanting to be married. Her need requires it. Now, the chapter has taught a couple of things about marriage. First of all, the Corinthians were in a situation where because of the present distress, it was better to be single. And second, the apostles taught that if you were single, you could serve the Lord better. For those two reasons, the apostle appears to be negative on marriage in 1 Corinthians 7. For those two reasons. Primarily for the first reason, because of the present distress. It has always been true, it always will be, until we get to heaven. It is not good for a man to be alone. That's a fact of the word of God, and Paul isn't overthrowing that. The Corinthian situation is a little bit different. We've got a man here that's got a girl who's 12. She appears to me to be married. She's past the flower of her age. She's of marrying age. Since the whole chapter's been negative on marriage, go ahead and let them marry. You haven't sinned, brother, if you let your daughter marry. Let them marry. Verse 37, nevertheless, he that standeth steadfast in his heart, not her heart, but in his heart, having no necessity, but hath power over his own will, wow, his own will, and hath so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin, doeth well. A man that is purposed in his own heart, I'm not going to let her get married because of the present distress and because of the distraction of having a husband. Verse 38, so that he that giveth her in marriage doeth well, but he that giveth her not in marriage doeth better. First Corinthians seven thirty-six through 38 a father has the authority to determine whether his daughter marries at all. And that is New Testament, not Old Testament. All right. Brother, those are all passages on marriage and weddings. Dating and engagement, I'm not going to teach on dating right now, should reflect parental authority in the same way if not to a greater degree. What I'm talking about here what the Bible teaches, is something you've got to start with your daughters when they are young, day by day, inculcating in their minds how much you love them, how much you understand men that they don't, how much you want to take care of them, how much you are thinking of 50 years and not 25 minutes and how you will pick a man that will love them and take care of them and that they will be happy with the rest of their lives. That needs to start when they're young. If you have failed at that, God, have mercy on your soul and your family. And if you if you can get started, get started. If you start right and do it consistently, she won't even know any different. Right. The persons that your daughters and sons date and the places they go and the practices of what they do ought to be turning in minute detail by dad. Amen. Right. Those jerks don't know what to do on a date except get in trouble. Right. Right. And any of us who've been there know. Amen. Dads should determine. You know, dating as we know it is a very recent invention that would not have been tolerated by most every other generation and every other society that has ever lived in the history of this world. No father. I was sitting on the porch with my daughter this afternoon, pretending I was a teenage girl, harassing her father when she's about 12.
1: Daddy, daddy, daddy. When
0: can I date? When can I date? And daddy, the pillar of conservatism, the pillar of righteousness, and the protector of all women, said, not till you're 16, and the little girl goes off and tells everyone how her dad is such a tyrant. Oh, isn't he a man for saying 16? And if he's a real Pharisee or really conservative, he says 17. And if he's a real libertine, he says 15. You know what I think of all three of them? Fools who are sacrificing their daughters. Amen the thought of a father saying goodbye to a 16-year-old girl, I don't care what the jerk's name is, and having the two of them walk out the door and get in the car and drive away to some event where they are by themselves is a fool. And I am. It's a fool. It's never been done, but till the last couple generations, other societies don't even know what it's about. The word of God has nothing like that in it. That is the most foolish thing because you men are the protectors of your daughters. Two ways. You have got to protect them from emotional involvement with someone else. And what goes hand in hand with that is sexual involvement. And believe me, emotional involvement and sexual involvement ought to go together in a woman. You should never let them get emotionally involved. When you're 16, Like he's some pillar of conservatism. I don't care if she's 36. Listen, how old is David? 50? 60? I don't care how old she is. My daughter is not going out alone, unchaperoned with another guy. I don't care how righteous he may appear. I don't care if he plucks the heart and sings sweetly the 23rd song. Would you trust David with your daughter? No. He was the best there ever was. He was a man after God's own heart. Never. (coughs) You want a date? Come and sit at my dinner table with me. I'll entertain you with lots of questions.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We'll see how sharp you are. And so will my daughter.
0: (laughs) 16. What a joke. What a joke. Dating as we know it is an invention of recent origin and our nation has lost all sense of responsibility to we'll take a 16-year-old girl and put her in the car with a 16 or 17-year-old guy and have, have, I was going through it all with my daughter this afternoon. yay Tommy's going to pick me up at 5 o'clock on Saturday in the morning and we're going to go to Six Flags over Georgia for the day and we'll be back before midnight. We'll just make sure you're back before midnight. You know that that's your deadline. I'll have to put you on curfew for a week if you don't get back at 12 o'clock. What a pillar of righteousness, a protector of women, a knight that ought to sit at the round table. What a joke, what a joke. 18 hours alone with a 17-year-old bundle of testosterone? That's ridiculous. Amen. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I wouldn't trust an angel with my daughter for 18 hours. I'm not going to give a percentage, I was going to, I don't know whether I will or not. Maybe you don't know the experience of the families that make up this church, but the families that make up this church know what I'm, most of them, most of them know what I'm talking about firsthand. That's right. And say what a rotten bunch no, no no we just live in a yeah yeah we're all rotten but we live in a rotten generation we don't have anyone helping it is a father's duty to preserve his daughter's virginity and the first way you start is by never letting her get emotionally involved and the way you do that is you date it date date it what honey what is a date and you forget the whole idea there are ways that you can let your daughter meet boys and control the situation, like I just gave an illustration. You and your wife, take him out to eat someplace together. Sit there and talk. Make the guy think. Expose him for what he is. If he's to be exposed, in 99.9% of a 100, he needs to be exposed. But do it. In the word of God, if a daughter ever raised her voice or raised her face against what I'm talking about right now, it'd be wiped off. And if waving it off didn't solve it, she'd be killed. It was flat-out parental authority because a father had to preserve that fool from herself and from guys that she will never understand if she's 95, with Solomon's with etc., etc. I want to say something about a particular institution that I ridicule a great deal for their theology. We have a university in this town that I admire, and I want to praise and commend. Because their dating practices are most scriptural. And while a lot of ridicule has been made of Bob Jones University, there is one thing they do, and they practice this right here. You do not date unchaperoned. We're talking about 18 to 24-year-old people. They have a dating parlor just like our great-grandparents had. Now, my grandfather had lived in a house that was built in 1880. He had a parlor. What that parlor was for? It was the most decorated room in the house. That parlor was for Sunday afternoon dating. That parlor was for dating. Bob Jones University has a dating parlor. Anybody want to go see it, I'll take you and show you. It looks like a gigantic furniture warehouse that specializes in only one piece of furniture, love <laughs> seats. There's, there's 1,013 of them, if you'll let me exaggerate this a bit. You'll be, you'll be amazed. They're scattered all over, and there's monitors walking through there making sure you never touch, and you don't get too goo goo with each other. But you're able to sit there and talk, and either 20-year-old just say, that is said. Yeah, I thought that too, and I was there. But now that I'm a father and I have a daughter right there, you know, I love that institution. I'd wash that man's car, to keep up with that idea. I'd send my daughter there, even if I had to teach her that half of what she hears is a bunch of horse hockey. If I lived in a state... You know, that institution puts up a fence around it and controls that environment so that fathers can send their daughters there, and they will protect those daughters. Sue, Marlene, and a few others that I can't think of right offhand, maybe, or women that went there, can tell you about the rules for girls even trying to get off campus. Very strict. You couldn't get off campus without special permission or upperclassmen with you. A guy and a girl cannot be seen together on that campus after 5.55 p.m. except on weekends. There are sidewalks you can never be seen walking on together. It's amazing. So scriptural. I love it. And I'll commend the institution I've condemned so many times. This idea of going to college where you can meet 3,000 other girls or a girl can meet 3,000 other guys and hop in the car and go to Table Rock and climb Table Rock together is full of birds. That is a joke. That is a joke. What in the world are you going to learn table rock that you can't learn in a dating parlor? There's one thing you can learn, and you're not supposed to learn it until you're married. Yeah. Whenever an engagement took place in the Word of God, it was, a, it was a contract, a deal between the groom and the bride's father. It was a transaction between men. You know, the emphasis in the word of God, the emphasis we should have, is on the groom winning the favor and approval of the bride's father, not the bride. You don't find the word of God, a man, trying to win the approval of a woman. You just don't find it. That's really a joke. It's a sick joke and it's perverted. You know, I hate those girls and their mothers that create the situation. (coughs) Joe Super calls on the telephone. Joe Super's a good guy. Joe Super's a guy you'd want for a son-in-law. He calls on the phone and he says to Susie, Susie, would you go to the concert with me on Saturday night? I'd like to take you to the concert on Saturday night down to Town Square. Susie says, oh, I'm sorry, Joe, but I'm already committed to going to the basketball game with Tommy. Oh. Joe says, well, what about Monday night? I'd like you to take you to the baseball game at... The church is heading out behind their building oh joe i've got another jerk taking me out of monday night i just can't go with you and see mamas just love this stuff i, I wish i could picture for you the perfect family you know it's it's had like happy days and other families like that dad sits around he's got an intelligence level somewhere around 70. and you've got a girl Playing with guys on strings, jerking them around, In the word of God, no man was ever subject to the whims of some stupid female. A man should be able to deal with another man for a woman and never, ever get turned down by the girl. That is... I went to chapel a year ago at Bob Jones University. And I'll tell you why I respect Bob Jones III, he stood in that pulpit and blasted 3,000 20-year-old women and said, you will never get an invitation to a date. And a date to them is going to in a dating parlor, parlor or an artist series or something like that. You will never get an invitation from a guy to turn him down. And he ripped them up one side and down the other. I could have run down the aisle. I mean, I never want to go down the aisle with Bob Jones. <laughs> it's the wrong thing, but I would have gone down the aisle for that. Think of men being subject to the whims of some stupid female. And you know what? What I just described is what women love. Their daughter getting all that attention. And the, whimp, the girls just love it. Just to jerk guys around like that. Say yes to this one. Grant her a little favor. Turn them down. I had three invite you out. Listen. She should have never been able to turn two of them down. It should have all been with Dad. And to win the approval of a man is something a man should and be willing to do, and a man can measure a man. And that's the way it ought to be done. That's the way it was always. Done, the word of God. You say you didn't give us a verse on dating. You know why? There are none. The only time you ever spent with a woman, she was your wife.
1: Period.
0: If you were alone with a woman, she was your wife. The Bible knows nothing about getting to know someone before you marry them. There was commitments far higher than that. If you were alone with a woman, she was your wife. And until then, you were kept apart. A wedding should be so arranged that the persons and the office of father before all present is honored. Both fathers should clearly acknowledge their roles, their authority and their approval of what's going on. Questions and charges from the fathers to the spouses would be great if you want something said and you just can't stomach a bunch of wine for a wedding. If you've if you got to have something more than that, then have the fathers grill the spouses. Especially the man. The woman doesn't need to be grilled. She needs to be charged by her father for upholding her family name by serving that man. And boy, the bride's father could have a day in the sun by taking that groom to task on how he better treat my daughter. If you want something public that carries some weight, and if it's done properly, that would carry some weight. <laughs> Rides shouldn't even compete with the role the fathers play in a wedding. I'm, I've given you tonight the second element of a scriptural wedding. The second element of a scriptural wedding is let's exalt who's important. If you know who's important, the two fathers. The two fathers. A marriage reflects on the character and the progeny, that's the descendants, of both the fathers present. It is no small matter for those men. When you let your son or your daughter marry someone, you are making a statement about your character as to what you will allow. You're also making a statement about what kind of descendants you expect to have bearing your name, or bearing your name indirectly if you're giving away your daughter. It is an important time for both fathers. And a wedding should be a time where those fathers are given their rightful places of authority and their approval, They're charging... The transaction between them should be made public, because that is what is done in the word of God. I want to ask you again. You have all been to traditional weddings. What role did the father of the groom play? What role did the father of the groom play? He sits there like a bump on a log. He he does nothing. He says nothing, he is not honored, he is ignored. If he showed up or not, it doesn't matter. Do you know how perverse that is? How about the father of the bride? He has four words. Pretty neat. Her mother and I. Wow. What a a role, what a man. (laughs) A marriage, a champion for his daughter, her mother and I. When in most cases, he's had very little to do with the whole thing. This couple's fallen in love, they've rushed off, they've made their plans, they've told him what they were going to do, and they've asked him to write the check. And he shows up to fulfill tradition, her mother and I. When a marriage is actually a transaction between that man and the other man, talking about the giving away of his daughter, because what an event. What an event is a wedding. a man has invested 20 years of love, care, protection, time, effort into a girl that's grown into a woman, and he is giving that woman to another man to have for the rest of his life. What a transaction. And the dads aren't even seeing anymore. It's like she's giving herself away, and they're just going through the form of asking him, he is the one that's giving something away. And that authority ought to be emphasized. I got to end tonight. I wanted to cover three elements and I covered one. I don't care. If there's one thing I want to do tonight, it's to get a hold of you men. Some of you don't have kids yet. You're going to have children. Where are the men? Will the real men stand up in this world? There aren't any. There are not any left. What I've preached tonight is so bizarre most men can't even stomach it. And the women godly women I believe can but women will fight against this because it doesn't sound fair to them because they don't understand the whole thing you fathers have a responsibility to protect your daughters of getting into hell and the worst hell a woman can ever meet with on this earth is not getting cancer cancer is merciful compared to being married group you get married to a group for 15 years where you know where you know your obligation is to that man to be abused by him and not loved by him it's hell it's double hell and i've never even been there and I, all i know is that i can read about it in the word of god and i see it because nature teaches us that we've all experienced it in the lives of others by seeing women that hurt day in day out your daughter will end up that way. A child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. Proverbs 29 15. Unless you fathers jump in and take charge of your daughters, you cannot let them get emotionally involved. You cannot let them get sexually involved. You cannot expose them to even the remotest risk. <laughs> You say, well, you can't eliminate all risk, and you may even do something at your dinner table. It'd be my pleasure to have them try it. <laughs> there are ways you eliminate risk. The same way you put up a fence around a swimming pool to keep toddling babies out of it. There are ways you can eliminate the opportunity for risk. You can make it extremely difficult. For those who I have often said in some you couples in private where there's a world there's a way and you can hardly eliminate it, I don't fully believe that. Because if you are tough enough and you eliminate enough of the opportunities, you can make it extremely difficult. Those of you who got into trouble know that your parents were so lax with a joke. They didn't even know the role of a parent. And to hear the words, well, I trust my daughter, that is so ridiculous. What what kind of a fool are you to trust a 17-year-old girl? What kind of fool are you to trust a 17-year-old guy? They are not to be trusted. Foolishness is bound in their heart. God gave you the wisdom that's to be trusted. And He gave that to fathers, not to mothers. He gave it to fathers. If there's one thing I have to leave you with tonight, and you're going to get it again next Sunday night, because every point we look at is going to bear on this to varying degrees. It is Father's responsibility to preserve their children from foolish mistakes in marriage, and you start way back in day, and you start when they're that age,
1: right?
0: and younger, training that are repeating over and over and over to them, you will make the decisions for them, and making those decisions for the rest of their lives, the decisions that you're responsible for. May God bless the preaching of his word and the salvation of some families. Amen. Amen.